The 2010s brought about immense change to the world of Missouri politics. At the beginning of the decade, the Show Me State was a competitive electoral battleground where both political parties had a chance to make significant gains. By 2019, Republicans had taken near-complete control of state government and key federal posts. So how did we get here? On the last episode of Politically Speaking of the 2010s, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue, Rachel Lipman, and Joe Manis joined me to break down the 10 stories that defined a decade. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision, and everybody in the room looks like you. You need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I have a lot of people with me here today. Today (laughs) we are doing our roundup show about the top 10 stories in politics in Missouri of the last decade. And uh, first, I'm going to introduce our panel because we have a lot of people in the room today. (laughs) Um, Okay, Holiday crowd. Exactly. (laughs) Well, since you talked first. No, I always, this is Joe Manis, semi-retired reporter at St. Louis Public Radio. Rachel Littman, political reporter, St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum political correspondent, St. Louis Public Radio. Okay, so today, the top 10 stories of the decade uh, were picked by Jason, Rachel, Joe, and our politics editor, Fred Ehrlich. Uh, There was a scoring mechanism used. I'm not going to go into it. It's not important. (laughs) But it wasn't rigged, I promise. But there was some consensus. Before we get to those top 10 stories, I'm going to go around the table and ask people for their honorable mention, a story that they would have put in the top 10 that didn't necessarily make it. And I'm going to start with you, Jason. Well, I'm going to make it easy because all my top 10 made it, so I don't have any honorable mentions. (laughs) Um, I chose a couple of city political stories that kind of one led into the other, but my big one that didn't make the top 10 was a lot of the turnover at the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. I think you're starting to see a lot different policies come out of that board as newer, younger aldermen take over um, some of those spots. Um, I had two. My key one, though, is the rise of the rich donors who I think have become even more powerful, particularly people like Rex Sinkfeld, um, who has really influenced some of the ones that did make the top 10. It's because of Sinkfeld's money that was used to propel those efforts, many of them that died. And then also uh, the rise of black women uh, officials. I wrote about this a couple years ago, but I really do think that that's overlooked in the region, how successful and how many there are of uh, very influential uh, black women officials in the county and in the city and in the region. Well, those are definitely very good examples. Um, So let's move on to our top 10. First up, number 10, Missouri House Speaker John Deal resigns after sending some inappropriate texts to an intern. Yeah, Deal, frankly, had been a former legislator from St. Louis County, um, had once been the chairman of the St. Louis Election Board, and had a pretty good reputation of things being um, operating pretty smoothly, getting some key things through the legislature. Well, he also had a habit. He was uh, had some inappropriate text messages 
of a salacious nature with an intern. And uh, it caused a big furor in Jeff City. He was forced out, forced to resign within a few days. Uh, but what it also did was this really played into, I think, kind of a pre-Me Too uh, story in that there was a real focus then on how uh, interns, especially young women, and some women lawmakers uh, are preyed upon in Jeff City. And there was a lot of discussion about it, a lot of efforts, particularly regarding interns to try to change some of the practices, because some of the universities said they weren't going to send interns anymore if something wasn't done. So it really kind of led to a broader discussion. And, uh, and of course, uh, for Deal, it destroyed his career. Number nine was the city-county merger debate slash discussion. Jason, you want to talk about this? This was a six-year story. It started with the formation of Better Together at the end of 2013, this group that was going to study sort of the possibilities of consolidation in St. Louis and St. Louis County. It got stalled, I think, by the shooting death of Michael Brown, but really revved up again in 2017 and revved up to an unprecedented level this year when Better Together came forward, produced this plan that would have created a metro government over the city and the county. There's a lot of reasons why Better Together failed. I think the statewide vote aspect rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I think that it had very little to non-existent support among the African-American political community. It certainly didn't help that the plan would have made Steve Stanger, the all-powerful mega mayor over everything. I just think that this may have showcased like a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of effort for nothing to show for it, which is probably why it's not higher on the list. But since it took up so much oxygen, it's hard not to talk about it. Okay, let's move on to number eight, which is the passage of Clean Missouri in 2018. Rachel? So Clean Missouri was a ballot initiative pushed by both local and outside groups, and a lot of the funding for it actually did come from outside groups, which was a little bit of an irony considering what Clean Missouri does. It uh, changes the way that the state legislative maps will be redrawn. This has absolutely nothing to do with the U.S. representative maps. This applies to the state legislative districts, and it basically says that they have to be drawn competitively, not to you know benefit one party or the other, but that there has to be a chance for Republicans and Democrats to compete in each of these districts. It also limits the amount of money and lobbyist gifts that can come into campaigns. And I think this is going to be interesting because there's going to be some legal challenges to it, I would imagine. Once these maps are drawn, we'll be curious to see who picks uh, or who becomes this demographer figure that is meant to do these maps, a nonpartisan demographer. You know, limits on money, always interesting to see how that plays out, whether it really changes anything, like Joe mentioned, with some of the big donors influencing politics. And I think it's also just going to suck up a lot of energy, efforts to overturn it, legal challenges, etc. And I'll be curious to see whether there's any momentum to do similar kind of money limiting actions in kind of county level. Like there is an effort to do so in St. Louis County to clean up elections. Well, number seven is the collapse of Congressman Todd Aiken's political career. Todd Aiken, a longtime um, state legislator, then congressman from West St. Louis County. Um, very conservative. Uh, he had a big evangelical homeschool base. Aiken came out of the 2012 Republican senatorial primary. Uh, it was a crowded field, three at the end. He won, and in effect, 
some Democrats thought he was the one person that Claire McCaskill could probably beat as far as for re-election. She certainly saw so, thought so, and gained a lot of national attention because of the ads that she ran during the Republican primary touting how conservative he was and wrong for Missouri, which some believe was actually intended to help him. Reverse psychology. Yeah, reverse <laughs> psychology. And then shortly after the primary, Aiken also gained national attention when he was on a radio interview with a local TV station and made this infamous phrase about how, um, in effect, that women who were raped couldn't get pregnant because their body would, quote, shut the whole thing down. And the result was that um, Aiken, it became a flashpoint uh, for the reproductive rights issues, and Claire McCaskill ended up sailing to a double-digit victory, even though this was a presidential election year, and Mitt Romney soundly defeated President Barack Obama in Missouri. Moving on to number six, this is Auditor Tom Schweik committing suicide after he had declared as a candidate for governor in Missouri. This was probably the, the, the saddest story I've ever covered as a reporter. It was the worst week of my reporting career because not only did Tom Schweik die that week, but my grandfather died two days later. Um, there was a lot of discussion after Tom Schweik's suicide about whether there was an anti-Semitic whispering campaign against him. There really was not a lot of evidence that that occurred. In fact, the Clayton Police Department didn't find any evidence of a whispering campaign. Um, there was kind of a domino effect after this in the sense that Tom Schweik's death led to Nicole Galloway basically serving an nearly an entire term after being appointed. And it was unfortunate for Republicans for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was the, the, the loss of a, a really excellent public servant in Tom Schweik. And it also meant that they lost a statewide office that Democrats literally fielded no candidate for in 2014. I think that there was some discussion about whether Tom Schweik's death was going to lead to a more civil discourse in Missouri politics. Frankly, I, I don't think that happened. I think Missouri politics is worse than it's ever been as far as discourse. Um, and I just think that, unfortunately, a lot of people wanted the Schweik death to have a lot more impact than I think that it did as far as the tenor and tone in Missouri politics. Okay, now we're going to move on to the top five, and we're going to have a little bit more of a roundtable discussion about the debate stories. <laughs> yes, yeah. a debate, if you will. Um, number five happened earlier this year, and that's Steve Stanger, his indictment, and I, I would say him going to prison after that. Yeah. Uh, Joe, the thing that we were surprised about was not that Stanger was capable of corruption, but we thought that he would be smarter about hiding his corruption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Stanger is a lawyer and an accountant and had used some of his expertise in his successful campaign in 2014 to knock off then-incumbent county executive uh, Charlie Dooley, um, who had been an institution in St. Louis County. Um, Stanger was from South County, and he was generally seen as kind of the new wave of the Democrats and, um, you know, flashy a little bit. And this just goes to show that you just never know what's going on with somebody. I was, I was, you you thought something was going on the last six months or year of his um, 
while he was in office because he was fighting with the county council all the time. But I was surprised that his actions that he didn't he wasn't more skillful at being corrupt. I think that's just sort of an arrogance that you kind of saw with him that he figured I am smart enough to hide this. I am, you know, people are going to be so loyal to me, whether it was out of fear or out of, you know, cult of personality. I don't know. I think he thought he was smart enough to hide it because of that arrogance in there. Uh, Just kind of came across as being a person who was like, I can't do wrong. No one is going to stop me from doing wrong. And that was clearly not the case. This might be an inside baseball observation, but I think that the true, like, fallout from the Stanger demise beyond the better together stuff that we talked about is Stanger was kind of at the helm of this corporate labor political faction that not only put him in office, but also put Lyda Cruz in an office in the city. And I think that his demise decimated that faction in the county to where it basically doesn't exist anymore. And it's done a lot of damage in the city to Cruson's, I think, future viability because she came out so strongly for the Better Together plan. She is, I think, very vulnerable to criticism. Not saying that that faction is dead or is never coming back, but I, I think I think Stanger's demise did brutal damage to that that group. I think his demise, though, is also an example, and we have another one coming up, of <laughs> of the power of being likable. He made so many enemies with his fellow Democrats, and we're going to see the mirror image on the other side <laughs> a few times up. The point is, is that if you're a powerful official, and you treat everybody like dirt, it will come back to bite you, especially if you've done some things wrong. The other big impact is it allowed Sam Page to become county executive. Sam Page, I think, has ushered in a much different type of government than Stanger had and is from a completely different political faction that Stanger had. Here is Sam Page right when he was appointed by the county council to be county executive. We will strive to set a new standard for ethical government and we will be open and transparent so you can hold us accountable. And I think going forward, whether or not he's able to keep that job long term is going to be whether he can follow through on that. Number four is the 2018 U.S. Senate race where Josh Hawley beat Claire McCaskill. Joe, do you want to talk about this Yeah, first? well, this is kind of an offshoot. This was sort of a fallout from 2012 in that um, Josh Hawley, um, who had been Uh, Missouri Attorney General, had not been in office before, former professor, but beloved of uh, social conservatives, involved in some legal cases, uh, ran very much a a strong campaign that focused on the Republican conservative base, Um, really went after McCaskill on a number of social issues. She tried to press health care and some other stuff, but it fell flat, even though she did generate a record-setting turnout helped generate a record-setting turnout, especially in the St. Louis area. It wasn't enough to generate the huge turnout that Hawley produced in outstate Missouri that helped him defeat her by about six percentage points. So I think that uh, that really sealed the deal as far as the um, power of 
conservative Republicans in the state, in my opinion. Rachel, you actually picked this for as number one on your list. So I want you to explain why. So I saw this as kind of being uh, the culmination of what we'll talk about next. And that is just sort of the shift of a lot of areas of Missouri from being relatively purple, relatively swing to full on red. There are now three blue dots kind of along Interstate 70, St. Louis, Columbia, Kansas City. And the rest of the state now is pretty deeply red. And as Joe mentioned, yes, she could get record turnout in St. Louis County, but you can't then that doesn't overtake 112 other counties all voting 75, 80, 85 percent for Josh Hawley. So kind of alluding a little bit to number three, which is the decline of the Missouri Democratic Party and the rise of the GOP. It was just sort of to me, this was the ultimate kind of peak is that they were able to topple this, you know, semi-moderate Democrat in Claire McCaskill, who I think had kind of been a model for how Democrats could win in Missouri. So the question is now, do they try and float more liberal candidates and try and gin up even more support in those blue areas? Or how do they sort of react at, you know, statewide and national uh, levels? I think that when Claire McCaskill beat Todd Akin, she basically bought six more years of time for the Missouri Democrats. If Sarah Stillman or John Bruner had been the nominee, I think McCaskill probably would have lost in 2012 because Romney won the state by nine percentage points. Right. And neither one of those candidates would have probably been so undisciplined to say what Todd Aiken said. But it didn't happen. And it marked the end of a political career of, of probably the one of the most important Missouri Democrats of our generation, Claire McCaskill. She was on St. Louis on the air right after she lost. And she had this reflection about the end of her tenure in elected office. I'm very competitive, right? I think everybody mm-hmm. kind of has figured that out. And I hate to lose. And I, um, so yeah, I, l- losing sucks. And it, <laughs> I didn't like losing. But having said that, um, I am like a kid in a candy store with what's next. What, ne- what was next for McCaskill is she is now actually an analyst on MSNBC. I'm sure that you saw her a lot before you took this job, Julie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had followed her a lot because um, I think the women in the Senate get a lot of more attention than than most of the men. So she was just on my radar for that reason, too. Yeah, well, her dream had always been to, uh, because I covered her for several decades, her dream had always been to be the first woman governor in the state. And then she'd had to change uh, her focus for various reasons. But she and so she she will remain the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate from Missouri. Jean Carnahan was appointed. And we're going to be back after this message with our top three stories of the decade. And we're back. Okay, we're moving into the top three stories of the decade as chosen by the St. Louis Public Radio politics team. The third story was kind of already alluded to, which is the rise of the Republicans in Missouri and the decline of the Democrats. And I guess I will start with Rachel, since she's mentioned this, <laughs> to talk to her about this. Yeah, I mean, I kind of already summarized it a little bit, and that's McC- McCaskill's loss to Hawley was kind of the, the uh, 
pinnacle, apogee, whatever you would call of this rise. But, you know, Jason, I, you know, you do a lot of reporting in Northeast Missouri. You're pretty familiar with the dynamics up there. And I think Northeast Missouri and Jeffco are really sort of examples of this. And, you know, it, these were areas that were purple, maybe leaned toward conservative blue, and now they just aren't. I mean, Jeffco Democrats, is there a single office holder in Jeffco who's a Democrat now? Just one county officer. Just one county officer is a Democrat. And that was an area that was a swing county in what was supposed to be a swing state. When I first started reporting here in 2008, I know Obama came through. I know McCain came through. Surrogates came through for the presidential campaign. You are probably never going to see another presidential candidate in Missouri because it doesn't matter anymore. Like, it's going to probably go Republican, and why would you waste your resources here? Now, the Republican drive, in my view, really kind of started a few years earlier when uh, the Republicans narrowly took control of the state Senate because of a special election in 2001. Then within a couple of years, they'd taken control of the state House, and they've never lost it since. And then they won the governorship. But then uh, Jay Nixon, then the attorney general and a long-term Democratic official, he led this whole crew of Democrats who helped in part by the Obama wave, won everything in 2008. So when you think about it, from 2008 on, despite what the Republicans were gaining on the local legislative level, uh, the Democrats still held virtually all, I mean, there's only one um, office, statewide office that they didn't hold in Jeff City until the debacle in in, uh, 2016. Yeah, I, I tend to think that the cataclysm was 2016. 2010 was a bad year for Democrats because they lost a bunch of legislative seats and Roy Blunt was able to maintain the U.S. Senate seat. Well, and he did it by, by a huge margin. Robin Carnahan, then the Secretary of State kind of collapsed. But, but 2016, I mean... Everybody thought Chris Coster was going to be the next governor. Everybody. And he's a Democrat. And when I think he made this speech in St. Louis conceding to Eric Greitens, I don't think we I think I don't think we knew at the time, but I think this was basically the end of the dominance of of Missouri Democrats over state government. Government is a synonym we use in place of the word cooperation. If we fail to cooperate as Missourians, we will find no path forward. My prayer is that all of Missouri's chosen leaders will make time to listen and learn from those of different backgrounds to gain a greater appreciation for the vast complexity of the state that we love. I don't really know if we've actually reached that uh, principle that then Attorney General Chris Coster was talking about, but I think that Coster's loss obviously had a lot to do with Trump winning the state by 19 points, which was unprecedented. But it also had to do with an intense hollowing out of the Democratic rural Missouri, which includes aforementioned Northeast Missouri, which I'm obsessed with, but also includes (laughs) Central and Southeast Missouri. Joe, you said before that Southeast Missouri voted in 2018 at the levels of Southwest Missouri, which 10 years ago would be unthinkable and given how right. republican given how democratic that area is yes and i i think that people like nicole galloway have a big challenge to reversing that not only in the rural areas but also in suburban areas which are still conservative like st charles county jefferson county lincoln county i think places. one of the big problems and i've been saying this is that the democrats don't have much of a bench for they whatever reason for whatever reason uh, I mean, when uh, Jay Nixon and, and everybody else ran for statewide office 
in 2008, there was a number of notable Democrats. There was this big fight for Attorney General. Coster switched parties the year before in part so he could win as Attorney General because he had been a Republican. My point being is here we are 11 years later. You can't imagine uh, a uh, Republican switching to a Democrat in the state to run for statewide office. And there's just they're just it, it's it's they had a really thin ticket except for a couple at the top in 2016 and you're just not seeing much difference now as we head into 2020 and by the way this was why actually i had scored this as the number one issue in the state over the last decade because i think almost everything else is tied to this well and i think also looking at even just the the fact that when galloway won her term outright as auditor I contend the only reason she won is or she yeah that she won is because the candidate she was running against was objectively not qualified for the job. You she put all, any it, one of the other Yeah, but she still almost lost to her. Exactly. That's my point is that you I don't know how she wins as governor when she barely beat an objectively unqualified candidate for auditor. I think if the, she had gone up against any of the other candidates who had run for auditor in the GOP side there would be no statewide Democratic office holders after McCaskill lost to Hawley. Yeah, I just also want to say this fits into a broader, I think, realignment politically in the Midwest. You know, I think you see some of these things also in Wisconsin, Ohio, and Michigan in certain areas, maybe not to the extent that you're seeing in Missouri, but there's there's a, a wider reordering. I, I don't it has to do with rural areas. I think it also has to do with some some people who traditionally would have been been Democrats, kind of in a labor uh, coalition, who maybe are are voting differently these days. So moving on to the second biggest story of the decade, Governor Eric Greitens resigns in 2018. Who wants to talk about this first? I would like to, in part, because I think his rise was tied in part to these large outside donors. I did a number of stories because Missouri, uh, the governor's race that year, there was no campaign donation limits. He defeated uh, a crowd of other Republicans who had records in in Jefferson City. Establishment Republicans, Establishment, I call them. Re- correct. Um, you know, he was a former Navy SEAL, uh, best-selling author, had a following among uh, uh, in the military and others nationally. And I was on uh, Stephen Colbert's show and got, you know, lauded. Um, so Greitens was kind of like the shiny object. And these other established Republicans ended up not, I mean, they, they even in these bitter debates, they weren't able to um, crack that veneer. But what did happen was uh, their whispering campaign, and Jason and I both knew about this, there had been whispers of um, personal... Um, Indiscretions. Indiscretions, Picadillos. None of it couldn't prove anything. Plus, no one talked about it until it kind of blew up. And uh, in um, 2018, it took about, what, six months, I would say, for it to finally uh, oust him. Yeah, Yeah. and it also included, like, two criminal charges, one of the criminal charges being dropped in dramatic fashion, him getting almost impeached by the House of Representatives, like a complete collapse of establishment Republican support. It was a roller coaster. Yeah, but but the one similarity between it and Stinger is that the, here was the case of a Republican being abandoned by his fellow Republicans. Many of them had been at odds with him over some policy issues. 
during his little over a year in office. So um, he had no support within his party, unlike uh, President Trump, who does. So, I mean, Greitens found himself basically a man without a country in well, some ways. If you're a person that has something that is this exploitable, and by this exploitable, I mean what Greitens was accused of doing to the woman in his basement, then maybe you should think about the consequences of other people before you run for office. Like, I understand that he had, like, desires for political power for many, many, many years. He should have thought before he decided to get into the to the political and elected office arena, what effect the revelations of his own behavior was going to have on his, on his wife, on his young children, on his staff, and on everybody that he purportedly cared about. And in many respects, everything led up to this moment in May 2018 when Greitens addressed the Capitol Press Corps and said these words. I know... And people of good faith know that I am not perfect, but I have not broken any laws nor committed any offense worthy of this treatment. I will let the fairness of this process be judged by history. And there are, have been kind of like rumblings over the last year or so that Greitens is somehow going to make a dramatic return or primary parson. I'm not saying that's never going to happen. Like, he may decide, you know, I was railroaded out of my job and the entire thing was a scam and a witch hunt and, you know, may get all those big donors you talked about, Joe, to to run a scorched earth campaign. I just have to question, though, whether he's going to want to face questions about his own really atrocious behavior before he was in office. I think this gets back to what we talked about with Stanger a little bit earlier in the conversation is there's just arrogance there. Like that, you know, even just in that clip, you hear like, you know, you can judge the fairness of this process if you want. And, you know, I will let that be the decision. But, you know, I have done nothing wrong. I, you know, I, I, this is all a witch hunt. It's Trumpian in some ways. The ongoing fallout from this, too, is fascinating in the sense that, you know, Greitens has kind of faded into the background. But, you have somebody who helped investigate this case for the St. Louis Circuit Attorney, Kim Gardner, being charged with perjury and the indictment of this investigator, William Tisby, doesn't look good for Gardner. No. And I have said multiple times there can be two things going on that can be true at the same time. Yes, they are probably unveiling her misconduct, pushing the narrative of her misconduct harder because she is a black woman who ran as a reformist prosecutor. And she could have also really screwed this case up. I've had people point out to me that the deal in which he resigned, they dropped a separate campaign finance charge. That was sort of the deal they'd worked out. But also in that document is attorneys for Greitens basically saying, we will not sue you over prosecutorial misconduct. I feel like you don't put that into a legally binding agreement unless you are nervous about the conduct of the case. What's fascinating to me is that one of the reasons the Republicans are willing to push uh, Greitens off the stage is because uh, then then Lieutenant Governor uh, Mike Parson was so well-liked, an institutional uh, Republican, um, had a lot of friends, had a lot of expertise. Ever since Parson became governor, he immediately tried to change the conversation. So I think there's a lot of people in the state who may have forgotten that Eric Greitens was governor. <laughs> 
The people in this room, however, have not. Julie, I'm interested, before we move on to the next topic, you were watching this. I don't know how closely you were watching this from Louisiana, <laughs> but I, I'd love to hear your takeaways from this whole thing. I mean, I think, like, I, I've thought a lot about this since I moved here. I think that the use of the, or the allegations surrounding the charity uh, and the use of, of that information in that list, actually, I like really can't imagine someone doing that that I had covered. I mean, that really seemed to the arrogance, to the point of the arrogance, like all the sexual stuff aside, that's like pretty arrogant to decide that you can just use things for your own, you know, purposes or ends. <laughs> well, many people forget he resigned after a judge ruled that he was going to have to make some of those donations for his defense public. Right. I really think it was the money that forced him out, not the sex. Well, moving on to the top story of the decade, I feel like this is not going to be a surprise to many people. Um, then we're talking top political story. Top political story. Although that kind of falls into our, a lot of categories our, of top yeah, stories. Probably maybe the top story. You all have decided it is the killing of Michael Brown in the aftermath of that. Um, which I know a lot of people refer to as Ferguson, but I've learned here some people don't like it being referred to that way. So, um, Rachel, do you want to talk about this initially? So this is obviously the uh, 2014, August 9th, 2014, white Ferguson police officer shoots and kills an unarmed black man, Michael Brown. Uh, turns into days and days and days of sometimes violent protests. There's another round after the police officer is not charged with a crime. And to me, it's less the event of Michael Brown's killing, although I did think that started an important conversation about how police are used in North County in terms of revenue generators and just the relationship between some of these police departments and their people. But to me, the most interesting thing that's come out of this is sort of a maturation of the protest movement to a political movement. You see that especially with the election of Wesley Bell as St. Louis County prosecutor. I think that was sort of their ultimate moment so far. And I think they've also been pushing a lot of policies and putting their support behind progressive candidates they think use their you know use their language can advocate for their causes so at least at the local level you have seen kind of a maturation of these protests into a political movement i know there's some disagreement about the impact that it's had on the statewide conversation but i don't know that you can argue really at the local level with the impact that it's had um, on the state level, I mean, I've argued that, I mean, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I just think it is. Uh, the uh, the Ferguson protests and the aftermath of this tragedy really has not had the impact on the state level that I think some would have hoped. Uh, many legislators or lawmakers have sorted to ignore it. Or the laws that they um, passed, some of them were, it, it impacted uh, predominantly African-American communities in some ways that some weren't too happy about. And in some cases, uh, the courts have tossed out those um, laws. So in some ways, if, as far as Jefferson City is concerned, the impact of Ferguson is almost nil, which and for many people is lamentable. They would hope that it would have left, led <coughs> to more... Um, uh, discussion of civil justice and um, uh, police behavior and all sorts of things, and none of that has happened. I think, but what did Rachel said on the local level was the the uh, defeat of longtime uh, county 
prosecuting attorney uh, Bob McCullough, who at one point had been considered the most popular or the most powerful Democrat in the state at one point, um, by Wesley Bell was sort of payback, but that sort of really signaled a change in uh, particularly in Democratic political circles in the St. Louis area. I was going back and forth about whether to put Ferguson number one or Greitens number one, because I think there are aspects of the, the Michael Brown Ferguson story that aren't really political. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them have to do with like law enforcement policy, which has political elements to it, but I think it's kind of in a separate sphere than politics. But I think the reason I ended up choosing this number one kind of stems from these comments that Bishop Derek Robinson made to me on the streets of Ferguson in August 2014 that really crystallized why this story was so important. People are hurt. They're seeking answers. And this is something that has has brewed on the fire for such so long. And so now is the opportunity for them to speak and speak now. I agree with Joe that I don't think that the policy impact in St. Louis or Missouri has been as significant as people want. But I don't think that there's any denying that the protest movement that came about after Michael Brown's death sparked what I feel is another civil rights movement across the entire country about how police officers treat African-Americans. The reason I think we heard so much about the the shootings of unarmed African-Americans in places like South Carolina, in Baton Rouge, in, in Cleveland, the reason I think people were talking about these shootings with a lot more intensity and with a lot more urgency was because of what happened in Ferguson. And I think that there are some places in the country where there have been a lot of policy movement because of this, and it's taken up a lot of, I would say, oxygen in the public policy realm. I think that there also has been some movement locally with St. Louis County's metamorphosis politically, especially after the departure of Steve Stanger. But I think a lot of what gets in the way in St. Louis is just there are so many racist and racial barriers that have been built up over 200 years that I think really make it difficult for everyday people to find common cause. Now, I do want to mention, I think the one aspect of political fallout that there was is that um, the his reaction to Ferguson, or at least the public perception of his reaction to Ferguson, really hurt the legacy of then-Governor Jay Nixon, um, who was a Democrat, but who was uh, accused of not responding appropriately. And uh, he then spent months trying to change that narrative, saying that wasn't the case. And whether one agrees or disagrees with the perception, the fact was that it did hurt his um, legacy. And at some point, he I think he had hoped that if Hillary Clinton had been elected president in 2016, he might have uh, gotten some sort of uh, national post. And aside from the fact that she didn't win, <laughs> um, the whole Ferguson um the aftermath, and some would say fiasco, of how uh, then-Governor Jay Nixon handled some of it sort of knocked off any of his hopes of a higher profile. Yeah, even if he wanted to run for U.S. Senate in 2022, like, I just don't think that's possible anymore, so. Okay, we've reached the end. We'd love to hear your feedback. Contact us via Twitter or through the email address feedback at stlpublicradio.org. I want to thank everyone for participating in the panel. 
Uh, let's go around and say how we can how you can reach us on Twitter. You Jason? Can, you can reach me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. I'm at R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. I'm at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I'm at, at J.S.O. Donahue. Um, before we leave, we'd like to thank our executive editor, Shula Newman, our political editor, Fred Ehrlich, our sound engineer, John Larson, and a happy new year to everybody. <laughs> <laughs>